0: Oftentimes it's better to start with creativity to help you learn the facts.
1: Life is too short to learn a a list of a thousand rando words.
0: From the campus of Stanford University,
1: this is Schools In
0: with your hosts, Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope.
1: Welcome to Schools In. I'm Denise Pope, Senior Lecturer with the Graduate School of Education at Stanford University. And I'm here with my co-host, Dan Schwartz, Dean of the Graduate School of Education. And actually, I should say I'm not here with Dan because I am seeing Dan through a screen because we are practicing healthy social distancing in honor of COVID-19.
0: Right. So I have just been running to every room in my house to see, can I find a stable internet connection? So, so that, that is part of, uh, fortunately, I have a house. I'm, I'm not in a studio apartment. But anyway, uh, Dr. Denise, is there a precedent for this pope?
1: I can say after the last 10 minutes, for sure, no, there is no precedent. Uh, no, I think we are living in a very, very different time. And, and I'm glad we're doing these shows to, to offer some perspective.
0: So how, how is your sense of time? Like, uh, I, I was in a meeting where I was truly confused whether it was Wednesday or Thursday. It took me a while to realize I was switched. Everybody else was looking at me like I was crazy.
1: You know, it's so hard when you're not in your normal routine, right? And so I, not only do I not know what day it is half the time, I am eating at crazy hours, like having a late lunch or I get hungry two hours after I eat a full breakfast. Like my schedule is completely off.
0: So I've been, I've increased my discipline for lots of things, actually. I think I'm going to come out of this, uh, probably won't shave until it's over, (laughs) Wear ratty or clothes, but I'm eating more regularly. So
1: I should. Well, know, I,
0: it's my mom is 92, and uh, she she lives at home, and she has uh, people that come in 12-hour shifts. And I've always been sort of annoyed she doesn't know what day of the week it is. But now I get it.
1: Now you get. Oh, you're going to have more empathy for your mom.
0: Yeah, until she s- reminds me that my favorite food is like stewed prunes and. <laughs> And it never was mom. I never liked stewed prunes. That was somebody else.
1: Wait, does anybody like stewed prunes? I just have to say, does your uh, mom does your mom like okay, stewed okay, prunes? Too? Okay.
0: <laughs> so uh, listeners, this is what it means to be stir crazy. You go off on stewed prunes. So so today, uh, you know, as as we all look at this, you sort of wonder, is there a precedent? Is there something in history where we can look back look back on this? So for example, uh, Stanford has developed an emergency operation structure that was developed as a result of uh, hurricane Katrina. So there's an ops center, there's sort of command and control. And this has been very effective at, you know, the, the most pressing questions of like life, safety, continuity. And, and, and so we learned a lesson from history there, but you know, I don't our, there must be other examples of this for schools, you know, where, where we, uh, Basically, school stopped. The closest I could think of when I was trying was like when teachers go on strike, and and so how do how do we handle that effectively?
1: The whole reason they go on strike is to try to show people that you can't handle it for long periods of time, and then the strike breaks when they come to an agreement. So that's you know that's the bargaining power. I think here it's it's um, there's nothing we can do to break the strike, right? We don't we don't know when this thing is going to end.
0: Although, although you do hope that as a consequence of this, people will have sufficient memories that as we come out of the recovery, they'll say, oh, these are the things we need to improve. Uh, this is a chance to change the structure so that in- in- inequities don't get exacerbated, things like right.
1: that. Right. Well, and I, I, I've said this before, I'll say it again. I hope we come out of this with real renewed respect for teachers
0: Denise, would you like to introduce our guest?
1: We are so lucky today to have an ed historian. Mike Hines is a professor in the history of education here at Stanford. We've had him on the show before. We discussed how schools can and should incorporate different people's experiences into their history curricula. But today Mike is back with us via Zoom to help put into historical context the moment that we're living through today with COVID-19.
2: Hi, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be back on, and it's good to see both of you, even virtually. Thank you.
0: It's good to see you, too. Uh, I'm glad you're doing well. So um, tell us about Chicago.
2: In thinking about how to restructure my own classes uh, here at the Graduate School of Education for our move to virtual instruction, I started thinking about what we could learn from the history of the field, right? And because my research is based in Chicago, I ended up sort of deep diving into an experiment from the 1930s that I think has some lessons for how we think about this move to remote learning or distance learning or virtual learning, whatever we wanna call it. Um, so in the summer of late summer of 1937, uh, an outbreak of polio hit the city of Chicago. Uh, As you know, the disease was highly contagious and was especially dangerous for young children where it caused paralysis or death. Um, Right. So it was
0: uh, it was particularly around children like mm -hmm. with coronavirus, children to some extent are spared. But this one was I mean, that's horrifying. If if the fear is my child will be crippled for life. that, That is a horrifying situation.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. And so, you know, understandably, the opening of the school year in September was delayed by several weeks. Uh, students were told to, to stay at home for their own protection, and parents and educators got really worried about the lost instructional time and the loss of student learning. So as a result, the then superintendent, a man named William H. Johnson, and his assistant superintendent, uh, Minnie Fallon, started thinking about how they could bring the school into the homes of, of students. And they launched sort of a cooperative experiment using the resources of, of local radio stations, of newspapers, libraries, public schools, um, to deliver that content virtually while students were kept out of school.
0: So, so how, how, how do they do that? So one of the things that I really see going on in the schools now is, uh, Lots of different schools have very different solutions. So some schools are, well, we're going to try and have every kid get an iPad. Other schools are sending packets of information. Other schools are saying, uh, we'll get back to you in a week. I mean, was this, were they able to sort of control the full district and bring it forward?
2: Yeah. So, you know, because... Uh, Chicago had a very hierarchical uh structure in their school district at this point in history. Uh, the assistant superintendent and the superintendent were really able to coordinate really well with uh, the different institutions that they needed to to make sure that everything was sort of working hand in hand this is, uh, uh, Allen,
0: this, mm-hmm. is this is this is Chicago of the corrupt era of Chicago. is that correct?
2: Ah, yeah, yeah. Well, um, historians would note that there are probably several corrupt eras of Chicago. (laughs) Um, Good point. this This was certainly, this was certainly one of the more corrupt eras of Chicago history. Um, yeah, that's a completely separate story, but the, the, uh, superintendent at the time would be booted out almost a decade later for, uh, for some graft and some corruption and some influence peddling, uh, but this is one of probably his, uh, his better accomplishments. Um, so, you know, during the crisis, this group of teachers and administrators working out of the Bureau of Curriculum for Chicago Public Schools basically came up with virtual lessons to be delivered by radio. Uh, and at that point, radio was a fairly new technology, uh, only a few decades old, uh, and using it to experiment in education was something that hadn't been tried widely yet. Uh, they didn't, certainly, they didn't have Sirius XM. Um, so these lessons and and this thing were were pretty experimental um, and pretty cutting edge for the day.
0: Oh, that's awesome. You know, so so I have thought to myself, if if there was no internet. You know, what, how would we, if there was no video conferencing, how would I survive? But it turns out radio.
2: Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're looking at it right now, right? You're (laughs) on it right now.
1: Speaking of which, this is Schools In with Denise Pope and Dan Schwartz. And we are talking with Michael Hines about the history of the polio epidemic in Chicago when all the schools had to close and they had to use radio to educate the kids. So tell us a little bit about the curriculum. How did they actually do this?
2: Okay. Well, I think one of the first lessons that we can learn from the sort of school by radio movement uh, in Chicago during this polio epidemic was that it was really well organized. Uh, Elementary teachers and principals, and I should note here that the program was for the district's about 325,000 elementary school students in particular. Um, High school students were told to sort of review lessons from the previous year. They were a little bit older, they were a little bit um, easier, it was a little bit easier to plan things for them to do. So this was mostly aimed at elementary school students. Um, So elementary teachers and principals wrote and prepared the lessons. They were overseen by subject area committees to ensure the overall quality and the continuity of the lessons. And then once that material was ready, the segments were presented over radio in 15-minute slots of airtime. Uh, so it was those slots were donated by six cooperating radio stations within Chicago. And the schedules of all those broadcast times and dates, along with directions and questions and assignments, those were all available in the local daily newspapers. So every morning students and their families could find the lessons for their own grade level and be prepared to uh, to set their dials to the appropriate station That's at brilliant. the appropriate time.
0: That's brilliant. That's so smart. You know, our newspapers are not, well, I guess not everybody uses a newspaper anymore.
1: Right. Uh, I mean, everyone gets their news on phone and, and or TV and different channels and different um, strokes for different folks, right? But, but the other thing that I thought was pretty brilliant is they recognized that you could only really handle about 15 minutes at a time because right now there are kids all over the U.S. who are told you have to sit on your computer and be in a virtual classroom. Some of whom are there from 8:30 in the morning till 3 o'clock at, at night, right? With maybe a, a break to go grab a drink or something. So this right. 15 minutes at a time thing, I think, is smart. I like that they're putting uh, the questions in the newspapers. And then I also read that there were certain days devoted to certain subjects. Can you say a little bit more about that, Mike?
2: Oh, absolutely. So different subjects were covered on specific days. Uh, So for instance, Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays were each devoted to social studies and science content. uh, And Tuesdays, Thursdays, and then some Saturdays as well were slotted for English and math. Um, And then what's really interesting is that after each airing, a committee of two principals who had been listening in to the entire program would review the lessons and then rate them on different aspects like the clarity and articulation of the presenters' voices, uh, the suitability of vocabulary for the younger audience, um, and that was all just sort of checks and balances to give a basis for improvement on the next broadcast.
1: Wow. Oh my God. That is something that we so don't have right now. Not only do we not have checks and <laughs> balances, right? We have uh, no idea really what's going on. No one else is sort of sitting in and listening in to the teacher's zoom lessons or, um, you know, checking the, the the quality. Everyone is just sort of in this free for all. Let's try and get something up there and, and, and cover the the topics. So that's, yeah. that's very, very impressive.
2: Yeah. I, I think it definitely was. Um, and I want to go back to something that you said earlier, which is that the lessons were short and sweet. You know, They were to the point, I think, as, as anyone who's tried to host a virtual meeting of any kind uh, probably agrees, without physically sharing a location, it's just much more difficult to hold an audience's attention. And uh, the Chicago Daily Tribune actually commented that uh, without being in the same physical location, they said any other distraction more attractive for the moment uh, may lure the listener away. Uh, I think that's probably as true now as it was Uh, 80 or 90 years ago
1: (laughs) and true for us as well right this is schools in with denise pope and dan schwartz we hope you're not being lured away we are talking with michael hines about what went on back in the 1930s in chicago where they had to close all the schools due to polio
0: so i just have a, a technical question so did they you said there were six radio stations so it was like one radio station for grade one one radio station was grade two is that how they set it up
2: um, some of the radio stations did cover multiple grade levels, um, but it was sort of on a week-by-week basis. Uh, basically, because the radio stations were donating their airtime, they sort of got to to pick and choose what they would like to cover on, on which days. Yeah.
1: I'm guessing that not everybody had a radio? I mean, a lot of people, but maybe not everyone, or maybe you lived out kind of a little bit more out there and didn't get every station or something. So, uh, you know, we're having all this problem with um, inequality and who has devices and who has internet access. Is is that something back then that they saw with, with the radio as the device?
2: Absolutely. I think access to technology, uneven access to technology is one of those problems that's, that's, Recurring in the history of education when you talk about new technologies for teaching and learning. Um, So, although Superintendent Johnson estimated that about 315 out of the 325,000 students tuned into the radio lessons on a given day, the schools also had to create makeup work for students whose families didn't own radios, didn't have access to radios, uh, places where there were poor reception or where a lot of families during the polio crisis were actually forced to leave the city of Chicago altogether for their safety. Um, So all of those things sort of um, had an effect on who could access the lessons and who couldn't. Of course, on the opposite end, uh, some homes reported that they were able to go to really extraordinary lengths to continue uh, to ensure that their children could listen in. So you hear it about families setting up two and three different radios and different rooms of the same house so that multiple students on multiple grade levels could all listen into their lessons at the same time. Um, so yeah, that inequity, uh, is really exacerbated during a crisis.
1: We've way, got, I the mean, way, there's, Oh, go ahead, Dan.
2: No, I was, uh, so their solution wasn't to
0: say, we'll buy everybody a radio. Their solution was to say, we'll, we'll make, uh, paper and pencil things and then somehow we'll deliver it to the kid and,
1: and i think some uh of that is still happening today as well right we will make packets for kids who don't have the internet or don't have devices and we'll get them out to them either we're mailing them or there's there's pickup points and there's pickup points that you could pick up your textbooks and and pick up your school lunch too
2: i've heard of, of many schools doing something similar as far as uh distributing work packets uh you know, much like the packets that might be sent home over a winter break or over a spring break. Um, and those are you know, a stopgap measure um, to try and try and address this problem of of inequitable access to, to uh, technology.
1: So, there's a line that you write uh, that says that observers worried that the pupils who benefit by the radio lessons might ultimately be those who need them the least and who would suffer least by curtailment of their classroom instruction. And I'm hearing echoes of that very much today.
2: Oh, absolutely. I think that the students that we really uh, need to be concerned about right now are students who need the school environment for remediation, who who need it for for extra supports, students with special needs. We need to be really thinking about how those students, how we still serve those students at a high level, uh, even in the midst of a crisis like this. And ultimately, a one-size-fits-all approach just won't work.
1: This is Schools In with Denise Pope and Dan Schwartz. We will have more with Michael Hines and lessons learned from Chicago and the polio epidemic when they had to close their schools next on SiriusXM.
0: This is Schools In. I'm not an expert at this.
1: I'm more expert than you. When you can't read in American society, you are really left out.
0: With Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. From the campus of Stanford University.
1: Welcome back to Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. We are talking with Mike Hines, who's an education historian, about what went on in Chicago way back in the 1930s when they had to close the school for polio and some of the lessons we can learn for COVID-19. You know, I
0: like the 15. minute uh, to keep attention span when when we talk about motivation we usually think about motivation to get started and then motivation to stay with it and so mm-hmm. i don't i don't know that for the students then 15 minutes of radio is that exciting like what did they was there any way for them to keep the kids in maybe they went to the parents and got the parents engaged or but Let's start with the radio. Was there something they did in the radio to make it better than a 15-minute lecture?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think that students were used to listening to radio as a medium of entertainment, right? They were used to listening to stories on radio, used to to listening to radio operas and uh, entertainment programs, westerns and mystery. And things like that. So in order to compete with that, I think the school district started to adopt tactics from the the entertainment world and from the commercial broadcasting world. And one of the ways that they did that was to introduce guest stars on some of their lesson broadcasts. So uh, in... September and late September of 1937, uh, a man named Carvith Wells, who was a British explorer and globetrotter, who was known for leading expeditions all throughout the world, throughout Africa and India and other exotic locales, if you were a student in Chicago, was scheduled to speak on the broadcast for specifically the third and fourth graders. Um, and that ensured that at least some of the lessons entertained as well as informed. I think the Chicago Tribune that day reported that it expected a shrill cheer of joy from the small people <laughs> when they hear that, that there were no multiplication exercises for the day. So uh, I think that's another lesson we can take away from this experiment in school by radio is that it really needs to be in, even more engaging uh, and even more entertaining than a normal lesson in a classroom would be.
1: Well, and Mike, you know, you are our guest, right? So you are the man that is supposed to draw people's attention to our show. So there's a little parallel here at SiriusXL.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm definitely no Arctic explorer, but I'll try. (laughs) (laughs) They're
1: flocking to hear you. So, But I think it's great because, you know, a lot of teachers right now are trying to figure out how to keep attention. Um, Even though you can see the video, I know one of the – cool things that the students think is happening is a teacher gives a tour of their house or their room or takes takes them into their life in a way that they would never get to see. And it's a way to keep the kids excited and listening to whatever's going on on that Zoom call.
2: Absolutely. I'm, uh, I'm starting to film uh, a short introductory video for my class that starts April 6th just introducing students to who I am, what my background is, what I do for fun. And I'm encouraging them to send in short videos as well as a way of introducing themselves to each other. Uh, And my dog makes plenty of cameos on Zoom meetings (laughs) and and also on online classes. So uh, if that's a way to pull people in, then, you know, I'm not beyond using that too.
1: Absolutely. Use it if you got it. So, so talk to us about parent engagement, because I'll tell you one of the, so wait, wait,
2: wait, wait, oh. I, that's just
0: sort of settling in what you said, Mike, you know, we, one of the things that we want teachers to do is to know something more about kids' lives, right? The kids they're teaching. This is brilliant. I, your solution is brilliant. I, you know, I, we need to like get every kid in America to make a three minute video of who they are, where they come from. Uh, everybody shares is brilliant.
1: It goes back to the long history of home visits, right, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. that elementary school teachers do. Uh, in some neighborhoods, they're still doing it. It was a, um, well, Mike, you probably know more about this than I do, but it makes a huge difference.
2: I think establishing any way to establish those connections with our students is really important. Um,
1: I'm, I'm
0: putting this on the list of things to make happen during a recovery. <laughs> I think this, is, this, is really, this is really good. Anyway, Denise, I cut you off. Sorry.
1: Oh, it's okay. It's okay. I'm I was there was just a a fascinating thing about parent engagement that Mike had mentioned. Uh and right now parents across the United States are trying to figure out how to get their kids to pay attention, what their role is. Are they the parent? Are they the home teacher? Um it there's a lot of angst actually. And I thought there was some interesting solutions back then. So um Mike, you wanna fill us in?
2: Sure. I think there were a couple of different ways that Chicago really made sure to try and actively engage parents and communities. So the first was a hotline that was established through the school district's central office and it was staffed by 16 teachers and parents were encouraged to call in with questions or comments after they heard that day's radio lectures. So after logging about a 1,000 calls on the first day of the program, the school district actually had to add an additional five teachers to staff the phones. Uh, And a newspaper reported that the evidence that the plan was being followed was the telephone calls of parents who were distressed if they were unable to get a certain station on the radio and some child missed a lesson, or even more so if some speaker had given the directions a little too fast and their child didn't get it. So other means of increasing and stoking parent involvement included urging families to set aside blocks of time with their students for daily lessons and daily study periods, and uh, even offering some prizes to parents who could write about or call in about uh, lessons that particularly interested them.
1: You're listening to Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope, but we're talking with Mike Hines about what happened in Chicago when they had a whole bunch of kids getting schooled by radio because they couldn't go in because of polio. And, and, and when I read about the parent prize, I was a little confused because you would think that they would want to reward the students, right, for the student, the best student lesson or the best student essay. But here they're giving a reward to the parents. So what, what do you make of that?
2: I think it was. Uh, I think it was a suggestion to keep parents involved, to keep parents uh, sort of taking, uh, looking over the shoulders of their students, because uh, in a radio lesson, in a virtual lesson, you do miss the the sort of discipline of a classroom uh, and the community of a classroom. So I think having parents and students listening to those lessons together was far more effective than having students sort of listen by themselves. So I, I, I
1: want to know who won that, that prize. I want to know, I want to see what that letter said. <laughs> You'll have to find that as a primary source, Mike. I will. I will. I'm, okay.
2: I'm on
0: it.
1: Okay, good. Good.
0: So this sounds like such a coherent, well-thought through uh, solution. And, you know, maybe it evolved over time, these features, they began to realize and include them. What, what was the lead time they had to sort of develop this? Like, did it, and the superintendent three months ahead of time say, okay, this is what we've got to do. And because like, because right now, everybody's sort of in chaos. They don't know how long it's going to last. So I don't see these, these large efforts to say, this is what it's going to be. Now let's plan now.
1: We have about a minute. What, what are some lessons that we can draw on? Mike?
2: I think the main lesson that we can draw on, uh, there, there are several. Uh, a few are that we should keep virtual instruction short and sweet that we should keep it entertaining, that we should try to think about access to technology, who has it and who doesn't, and how do we plan for that? Uh, And also, how do we involve parents and communities? But I think the overall lesson is that as amazing as technology is, it's only a tool. Uh, It's only as good as the dedication and the resourcefulness and the adaptability uh, of our teachers.
1: How long were these people listening to the radios and not in school face-to-face?
2: Well, in this instance, the polio epidemic only lasted uh, a good month. So students were only out of school for about three, four weeks. Um, I think what's unprecedented about the situation that we're in now is that, of course, we don't know when it's going to end. Uh, and it's it's not just in one city, it's everywhere.
1: This is what I love about ed historians, right? Because we're all sitting here going, what the heck? No one knows what's going on. And Mike's like, well, actually, it was this time back then and there's some lessons we can learn. Thank you so much, Mike, for being here. And thank all of you for listening to Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. If you missed any of this episode, listen anytime on demand with the SiriusXM app on iTunes, and SoundCloud.
0: From the campus of Stanford University, this has been Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope on SiriusXM Business Radio. If you missed any of it, listen on demand online or with the SiriusXM app.